This morning we are celebrating Ascension, um, and it's interesting to me that uh, the church, uh, the Archbishop has chosen this week as uh, the week in which to have a week of prayer, and interestingly the Ascension is immediately followed by prayer, and so part of what we'll be looking at is why that is. You might want to keep that question vaguely in the back of your minds as we, uh, as we read and talk about this passage. <clears throat> but let me read to us, uh, and then I'll pray. Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to uh, to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself uh, to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift of my, fa- my father has promised, uh, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Father, I pray that you'd be with us uh, as we look at this passage this morning, that you'd show us uh, what this passage means for us um, in the the days and weeks that lie ahead. Um, Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know how you experience this passage. Um, if you're anything like me, your, your first sense is, is, is just the absurdity of it, really. Um, it was, uh, it's one of the hardest passages to envisage, and as, as you can see, artists have battled with the absurdity of the visuals on this. I mean, it's just such a wonderful pair of feet sticking out the top of the picture, isn't it? Um, and the, this picture has uh, the cloud, you can't really tell there, but it has this uh, very strange, very close perspective of uh, just being sort of a very localized little cloud surrounding uh, Jesus. Uh, and it, it kind of begs the question, is this is the one bit of the whole story of Jesus where they, they must have slightly regretted doing it in the Middle East when it wasn't going to be cloudy. And I imagine, how many days did Jesus come out in the morning and go, oh, if only we'd done this in England. You know? <laughs> Let me show you another uh, piece of art. Um, I, I love this sort of um, slow, painful ascent that you get the sense of with this. Um, it reminds me a little bit of a sort of Renaissance version of Despicable Me 2, when <laughs> Dr. Nefario slowly and painfully raises up in his, in his farewell on his mobility scooter. Um, and, I, and, I, and I start to wonder why Peter didn't just simply grab hold of his foot and drag him back down again. But uh, let me show you, uh, show you one more. This, I'm sorry, you can't really see this one very well, but there is a Jesus figure in that white area there. Um, I, I actually prefer this a little bit more because... It has less of a sense of 
Jesus sort of moving up on a sort of lift um, and more a sense of him moving into another dimension, into a sort of glorious dimension. Um, though I do wonder what, what Peter's shouting up to him with his hands waving. Is it sort of, wait, wait, you, you've forgotten your phone. I don't know. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd visual, isn't it? And I think the thing to say about the visuals is that the visuals are a symbol that would have been understood um, in, at the time. In the ancient Near East, the way that they understood the way that the world was built was that there, the sky was a big watery dome over the earth, a little bit like in the Hunger Games, except it's not watery in the Hunger Games. But, but you imagine a big dome over the earth. And they imagined that the gods, temples, lived on top of this dome. Now, that's, that's not how the Israelites viewed it, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that's the way we should view it, but that's the sort of imaginative, imaginative associations that, uh, that Jesus raising up like this would have had uh, for them, that he was going back to the realm of God. Um, now, if we can get past the absurdity of the visuals, um, I wonder what the next response we might naturally have to this um, and I think it's actually one of sadness uh, that, that it's actually a very poignant story. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the final scenes of Lord of the Rings um, when Frodo and Gandalf uh, start boarding the ship to go to Grey Havens. Um, and um, I have to admit at this point, I've never read the books. I've always been a bit too afraid of the Tom Bombadil stuff. But I know the films well. Um, and there's it's hugely emotionally charged moment, isn't it? Um, there's this bond that has been formed over this epic journey. You're 11 hours in if you're watching the extended editions, right? Um, and uh, there's this, this huge journey, this huge bond that's been developed, and it's now being ripped apart. They're saying farewell. Um, it's now over. And, and the scene that follows this one is of Samwise returning to his little life in Bag End, um, and I find that even more sad. It's, it, it feels incredibly hollow to me, that sense that actually, Sam, you can't, you can't go back. You're, you're a different person now. You're going back to this old life where nobody's going to understand you. You're going to feel deeply isolated. Um, what does anything mean anymore? Anyway, that's, that's how I experience that final scene. Um, is that how we read this story? This epic journey that they've all been on comes to a sticky end, and there's this sad uh, farewell. Uh, do you imagine the disciples going back, uh, trying to go back to their old life before the epic journey that they've been on with Jesus? Um, and in fact, after the crucifixion, that's exactly what does happen. Uh, after the crucifixion, when everything seems to have come to an end, Peter's first response is, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I know from my former life. But actually, here, we have a very different response. If we look on beyond uh, where we stopped reading, um, there's no fishing involved. Um, we actually go back to, uh, they, they all go back to Jerusalem. Um, and what do they do? They have a prayer meeting. Um, and they plan for the future. There's this sense of preparing for what's going to go ahead. They have to appoint a new leader to replace Judas, who betrayed Jesus. So there's, the story has this huge sense of forward momentum. This is not the end of an epic journey. This is the start of a new one. And if you notice where the story comes, it start, comes at the beginning 
of the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts uh, is written by the same person that wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's the sort of sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Um, and in the, in the book of Luke, the book actually closes again with the story of the ascension. And that's the big climax at the end of the book. But again, it isn't a sense of completion. It's a cliffhanger. You, you finish Luke with the sense of, well, now what's going to happen? Uh, how will the disciples take on uh, the new role that they've been given? What's going to happen next? And actually here, at the beginning of Acts, this is more like the, the recap that you get at the beginning of some TV shows. Previously in the book, in the story of Luke Acts, and you have a little bit of a rerun of what's happened. That's actually, uh, this, this is the story that links Luke and Acts. Um, and notice uh, how the story actually begins. Uh, Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In fact, in the, in the Greek, there's a sense of, on the one hand, everything he began to do and teach. There's a strong sense that Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Um, Luke, Luke's gospel then could be understood as what Jesus did in his body, whereas Acts is the story of what Jesus continued to do in the bodies of his followers by his Holy Spirit. They become the new body. Um, and in fact, if you go through the book of Acts, what you find at the end is there's not a sense of completion there either. There's, the book of Acts finishes with this sort of sense of dot, 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 etc., etc. The point being that, of course, the story doesn't end there. Uh, it carries on. The epic journey gets inherited by us um, as the members of the church. Um, we are the continued body of Christ. It is through us that Jesus continues to do and to teach. So this ascension story is actually the story that connects our hands and feet to the very hands and feet of Jesus, rather than this being a story about a sad final farewell. The ascension has a sense of future, of commission, and the disciples didn't go back to a smaller life. They went back to prepare for a bigger one. So what is this epic journey uh, that the disciples were embarking on, and how does the ascension fit into that? Um, well, you might summarize the task of this epic journey as this. It is the bringing everything under the kingship of Jesus. Now, the disciples had a sense of Jesus being a king. Um, uh, and, but just as throughout the story, they've, they've not really actually understood the scope of what that really means. Look at verse 6, if you've still got it open. They, they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Actually, they've asked this several times uh, throughout the story. If, you've, if you know the story, they're constantly, there's this sense of, are they going to, are they, is Jesus going to really go on, take, the, take Israel, restore Israel? Um, and the reason they think that way is actually the Old Testament has lots of stories of the people of Israel being oppressed by other nations um, and God sending them a deliverer, uh, a military deliverer, who frees them uh, and gives them back their sovereignty. Um, and uh, 
and of course the disciples who are experiencing the, imp- the oppression of the Roman Empire are immediately going to think, well, this must be what Jesus is going to do. So it's inevitable that that's the way they think. And of course their hopes have already been dashed once in the story of the crucifixion. That's the point at which they think the story has come to a sticky end. And then in the resurrection, their hope is is reignited. And they find themselves stood in front of Jesus once more and say, okay, now now, Jesus, is this the time that you're going to finally restore the kingdom of Israel? But in the ascension, Jesus answers them by showing how the scope of his kingship just extends so much beyond anything that they could have imagined. And, and the ascension brings out uh, this, the scope of his kingship in two basic ways, I'd say. First is the sense of bringing heaven and earth together. Um, and the second is in the sense of Jesus being placed as king over both. So we'll talk for a minute or two about each of those ideas. Firstly, bringing heaven and earth together. Um, I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven and earth. Um, we'll, we'll simply use it as shorthand for God's domain uh, and the domain of humankind. Um, and actually, what we find in the Bible is, is that those ideas were never supposed to be separate. Um, as the story of the Bible opens in Genesis, there's the sense that God is king over heaven and he delegates his kingship to humankind over the earth. Um, but early uh, in those chapters of Genesis, uh, we get descriptions of, of how humankind's desire to rule in their own, under the, you know, in their own right um, uh, leads to them deciding to rebel against uh, God and against his kingship. So this beautiful, united, joined, idyllic Eden in which God walks with humanity in the cool of the day through the garden, uh, is broken. It is separated. Um, And actually, throughout the Bible, there are these hints, these little symbols of God's intention to reunite heaven and earth as one. In fact, there's a sense of trajectory through all of these different symbols. Um, It starts in some ways uh, with Israel. Israel are to be a symbol of God's presence and blessing in the world. Uh, Their temple was a particular symbol of God's presence among them. Um, Of course, the Christmas story of Jesus coming to earth as a baby, that is about God coming to earth as a human. And in the resurrection, uh, that's the story of Jesus, this this God-human, having dealt with the rebellion that had ripped apart heaven and earth, being raised as the first citizen of the reunited heaven and earth, which is why the ascension stories, sorry, the, the, the resurrection stories are all a bit strange. He's a different kind of human. In the ascension here, we find uh, God in Jesus moving effortlessly between heaven and earth. Pentecost, which we'll look at next week, again, continues this trajectory which carries on throughout the Bible. And just as an aside, let me just point out that what this means about the Christian hope, it isn't that one day we will go and sit in some disembodied context uh, on a cloud 
um, in heaven, uh, but rather uh, that we will inhabit an earth uh, which is reunited fully with the glorious presence of God. You might, you might think of this trajectory a little bit like uh, the drilling of the channel tunnel. Stick with me. Uh, um, but I found this footage of, the, of them filming the moment when they broke through in the tunnel. Um, and it starts with that sense of you could just about hear each other through the, the, the last remaining little bit of rock. Um, and then eventually, uh, a little hole is pumped through, and everyone's, hey! And they start shaking hands and passing flags through the hole. They make it a little bit bigger, and then, you know, somebody can squeeze their head and torso through. And, um, but, of course, the BBC hadn't thought this through, so they were filming from the wrong side, which means all you get to see is the backside of the workman who stuck his head through. Um, and, uh, and eventually, the hole gets bigger. They can actually walk through, uh, and they can walk to each other's side of the tunnel. And then eventually, of course... They can take a whole train through this tunnel. There's this sense of trajectory uh, as, as, uh, of, of reuniting, which reminds us of this trajectory throughout Scripture of heaven and earth being reunited bit by bit. So when the disciples in this story say to Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What they're talking about is the first little tap, tap, tap in that tunnel. Um, the first hint of that reuniting. But the ascension is so much more than that. It so surpasses that. It is so much further down this story of the reuniting of heaven and earth. Secondly then, um, on top of that idea of the reuniting of heaven and earth, there's this sense uh, that Jesus is set as king over both. There are there are kingly associations which might not be immediately obvious in this passage. Um, the first is simply this, that, that when a Roman emperor died, there were lots of stories of how their soul uh, would rise up to the heavens where they would become a god. Um, so there's a sense in which uh, Luke is describing Jesus as surpassing the emperors themselves, that he uh, is able to rise up and join the gods in his actual body. Uh, so that's just one of the sort of imaginative associations that would have been created by uh, this, uh, what, what happened here. There's also a very important uh, Old Testament connotation linked to the idea of kingship. Uh, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, uh, Daniel has a vision. This is hundreds of years before these events, but his vision really is of the ascension viewed from the heavenly perspective. Um, uh, And Daniel describes a vision of the Son of Man. Jesus often describes himself as the Son of Man uh, in the Gospels. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's how you would have experienced the ascension if you were in heaven, not on earth. Um, And as the angels say, actually Jesus is going to come back one day. And this reuniting of heaven and earth under his 
kingship is going to be complete. I'll give you another prophecy. This is in Revelation. So this hasn't been written during this story. Uh, but um, but this, is what, this is the vision that John sees. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So while the disciples are concerned about Jesus' kingship over Israel, the ascension points to this much bigger kingship far beyond the borders of Israel. So with those two big ideas in mind, what do we do with that? Or what do the disciples do? Um, if you read on beyond where we, um, where we, we read, um, the rest of the chapter fills in the gap between the Ascension and Pentecost, which is what we'll look at next week. Um, and we see that they basically do two things. Look at verse 14. They come together and they pray. They pray together. And if, as you look on, um, they, again, they plan for the future. As I said, they appoint a new leader to replace Judas. This sense of forward momentum. Uh, uh, the kingship of Jesus is their commissioning. So they pray uh, because prayer is a celebration of the reuniting of heaven and earth. And it is a symbol of that. It, it is a welcoming of God's domain into the domain of our everyday lives um, in the streets, the schools, the offices, uh, the trains that uh, will make up the context of our week. And it is a recognition that Jesus actually has authority over all of those contexts. We pray to and through Jesus, this God-human, ascended to the right hand of the Father. We pray that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray, we plan, we have faith that Jesus will indeed continue to bring about his plans. He will continue this epic journey among us. Uh, we will see his kingly reign coming in. We plan and prepare on the basis that we uh, will be his body uh, through whom his reign of peace and love will be brought into this world. So as we move into this week of prayer, um, we can bear that in mind that because of the kingship of Jesus over the reunited heaven and earth, our prayer is meaningful and powerful. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, that you have reunited heaven and earth and that one day that will come to its fullness and we long for that to be the case. We say, come Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, we recognize your lordship over all that happens this week, that there's not a corner of this world over which you are not king. Um, and we pray for your will to be done. Um, and we pray that you would be with us, uh, that we would be part of your epic journey of bringing uh, your reign uh, to bear uh, in, this, in, this, uh, in this world. Amen.